0: Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. Now, for those of you who are paying attention, you'll say, well, Brother Kyle, what happened to verses 1 through 4? Do not fear, little one. We'll get there Sunday morning. Amen? That was such a great salvation message that I changed the message that I was preaching. Uh, to Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, because uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful passage that will be there Sunday, uh, Sunday morning. So we're in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. If you found it, say amen. All right. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, you've got to look back at verse 13 of chapter 1 to really understand what he's saying here. Look where it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So, he, he's speaking about that. And he's continuing here to show uh, that Jesus is superior to the angels. And when he says that little phrase, God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, the context there is, is man's final and ultimate salvation. Uh, when God created man, if you remember in the book of Genesis, he gave him dominion over all the, all the earth. But that dominion was forfeited, wasn't it, when, when he sinned. Uh, we're going to get to that more in, in just a minute. But the point is, angels were never given the promises of dominion over the earth. That was never given to angels, but man was given that, uh, that, that promise. Now look with me at verse 6. "...it has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet." Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So here we have a quote from the Psalms, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And it's quoted as a proof text to the point that was just made in verse 5. So what we're going to do now is just break that down. The the psalmist is humbled at the thought of God, number one, being mindful of him. What does that word mean, mindful? Well, it means to, to remember. And it's interesting because the tense there is a present tense. You say, well, why in the world does that matter? That matters because when it's in a present tense, it means that God continues to be mindful of him. It's not that God used to be mindful of him, but God continues to be mindful of him. So the psalmist here is humbled to think that God thinks of him regularly. That God thinks of him on an ongoing basis. And by the way, uh, that is probably one of the most amazing things, isn't it? When you think about God and you think about earth, earth is just a speck to God, isn't it? It's so tiny, so small. And if earth is just a speck, think about how small we are. Or even smaller than that. And that's why he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why in the world would you think about us, God, when there's so much to think about? And the second thing you see there is God cares for him. That you care for him, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of Man, and those are just synonyms. It's a poetic way, man and son of man is the same thing there. Why do you care for him? And that word means, it means to look after. So it's not only that God cares, but that God actually tends to man, like a shepherd would his sheep, that God continually meets the needs. Of his people, So God doesn't just think about man. God thinks about man. And as He thinks about man, He cares for man. And the psalmist is just humbled at that thought. And so what do we learn about God there? Well, we see that God cares and is involved in His creation. Amen? God cares for us and not only does he care for us but he's actively involved in, in, in our lives and, and by the way that is certainly true when you're saved but but you know that is even true before you're saved cuz you can look back before you were saved can't you and see the things that God did in your life to bring you to saving faith uh, how God took care of you and then the scripture says that he makes the rain fall on the just and the what and the unjust So what is man? He's just amazed here. Now now look in verses 7 and 8, we see there... There are two ways that theologians have interpreted these verses, and I'm going to give you both of them, and you can kind of work that out in your head. Look what he says there. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The first uh, thought is this. The first way theologians have looked at this is mankind has been made temporarily lower than the angels. Now, how is mankind lower than the angels? And this is true. Absolutely, this is true. First of all, we're limited by physical body. Uh, we can get sick. Uh, we can get weak. We can die. None of that is true of an angel. An angel does not have the limitations of a human body. And so we're, we're made lower than angels in the sense that we have a physical body and they don't. Uh, secondly, we're, we're, we're lower than the angels in that angels have unlimited access to God. They come and go in the very presence of God. Uh, we can't see God like angels can see God right now. We can't go in and out of God's presence like angels can do right now. But 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 they are. Uh, thirdly, we're we're limited by strength. Angels are far superior in strength uh, to mankind. So in all those for all those reasons, we're made a little lower than the angels. So that's the way that some have interpreted that. But secondly. Some look at this and say that the man here refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. And the idea here is that Christ would be made lower than the angels for a little while. Now you say, how would that happen? Well, in the Incarnation. Um, not in His intrinsic value. Christ is far more worthy than any angel. But but, but it could be speaking of just, just that moment. In becoming a human, Jesus took upon Himself the limitations and the weaknesses of a human body. Now that was only temporary. Uh, the exalted Christ has now returned to His throne. So if the reference is to mankind, then the glorification of man and subjugation of all things under His feet is the result of Jesus conquering death, hell, and the grave on behalf of humanity, restoring humanity to its proper place. Which means you can kind of blend those two interpretations together when when you think about it like that. Now, the writer has to make a clarification at the end of verse 8 because he says, look, I know that we don't right now see everything under the feet of Jesus. And we don't yet see everything under the feet of mankind. And so the obvious question there is, okay, if this is true, then, then, then why hasn't that happened? And, and the answer is this, the end has not come yet. The end has not come yet. When Christ returns, everything's going to be replaced repl- uh, in its proper order. And when that happens, the Scripture teaches that mankind will be given a position over angels. In a very interesting uh, verse, 1 Corinthians 6.3, it says that, that humans will judge angels. So there is for a little while lower than angels for us as humanity. But when Christ returns and everything is put under His feet and there is a new kingdom, then there we are, above the angels. But for right now, y'all, we, we reap the benefits of the fall. Uh, we struggle to grow crops. We're in danger from animals and even bugs. Disease is a threat to us. We don't have dominion, it doesn't appear. But what you've got to remember is ultimately all those things will be fixed. Ultimately, that dominion will be returned to mankind. We will have absolute and and complete dominion. Now now look at verse 9. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Now now this verse tells us how all those things are going to be fixed. Now clearly this is talking about Jesus. Jesus. Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. You ever, you ever thought about that? And now we're, I'm talking here now about... I'm talking about holy angels. I'm not talking about demons. I'm not talking about fallen angels. But, but the angels were absolutely aware of the incarnation. You remember when you think about Christmas, uh, you think about angels, don't you? Because we know that, that angels came to announce the birth of Christ. Not only that, but on the very night that Christ was born, they were there as well. Even when he grew up, and remember as he started his ministry, and and he was tempted in the wilderness, remember that, for 40 days and 40 nights by by Satan himself. The Bible says angels came. And and they strengthened him. Um, They knew what Judas did through a fallen angel. Satan was a fallen angel. And they knew that, that that fallen angel had entered into Judas. That they, were, they were there at the cross. They were ready. Jesus talked about that. He said, Man, he said, All I got to do right now is just call on the angels and they come deliver me. So he said, I'm going willingly to this thing. Don't, don't think I'm not going willingly to, to, to the cross. And so angels were aware of this incarnation, they were aware of, of the ministry of Jesus. And, and all the while, when the angels were looking at this and they were seeing Jesus, remember, they were in a wonderful position of strength, weren't they? They were in a wonderful place of protection. They were in the very presence of God. And now they're looking at Jesus who is suffering. So here He has made a little lower than the angels. And the angels are looking at this and, and they're, they're scratching their heads and they're amazed at what Christ is doing. for for, for all of humanity here. But even though Jesus did that and went through all of those terrible things, the Scripture says He was crowned with glory and honor because of His suffering. You see, Jesus is exalted because of what He did on the cross. I've I've, I've said this before. You, You think about the cross and you think, how many songs of forgiveness do we sing to the Lord? I mean, we sing songs of forgiveness, don't we? When we we thank God, how often do we thank God for our salvation? Do we thank God for forgiveness? The precious blood of Jesus. Even when you read the book of Revelation and you you see a picture of, of heaven, even in heaven when they sing, they're singing about being redeemed. They're singing about being saved. And so it's not that Christ is exalted in that He somehow became better because of the suffering, but it's this, that you and I exalt and see Jesus in a very precious way because of what He did for us on the cross. We lift Him up. We exalt Him because of His suffering, because of what He's done for us. We lift Him up. Notice it says that Jesus suffered death. That He died this slow and painful death. And notice there it says, He he tasted death for everyone. And why is that word tasted there? The word tasted is there because it refers to something that's being experienced. When you taste something, you truly experience it. You can take a a beautiful pie and put it on the table, and and you can look at it, and you can experience it in that regard, but you're not really experiencing that pie until you take that pie and you taste it, right? Right? You've tasted it, and now you have that experience there. And so the idea here is him tasting death. Is He didn't just look at death. He didn't just think about death, but, but he actually died. He, he tasted death, and, and everything that goes along with death, Jesus experienced. In other words, there were no shortcuts. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that Jesus could have just died quickly? Do you remember when Jesus died? If you remember, they were surprised that Jesus died because normally when you were crucified, the way you died was they would come along and uh, if they wanted you to die with you, they would come along and they would break your kneecaps or your legs. And the reason they could do that is because when you're crucified, the way you breathe is you have to push up to get your lungs in a position where you can actually take a break so there were times when they would, it would take up to a week for a person to die who had been crucified. But when it was a holy day, like it was with the Jews, and they didn't want these bodies you know, hanging up there on the Sabbath day, out of mercy they would come and they would break the legs. But when they got to Jesus, His legs weren't broken. He had died six hours into it. He had died and they were amazed. Like, hey, we didn't even break His legs. But the point is, the Bible says that Jesus died when He wanted to die. When he was ready to die, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Remember that? And he just died because the power of life and death, his own life and death, was in his hands. And you say, well, six hours, man. Okay, that's a lot better than a week. Well, let me ask you this. If you had the chance to die and you knew you were going to die, would you wait six hours? and suffer and have all those bugs biting on you on the cross and, and have those splinters in your back? No, I'd I just go ahead and dive about the first 30 seconds into it, wouldn't you? But Jesus hangs on for six hours intentionally. Why? Tasting death. Experiencing everything that the, the thief on his right and on his left would experience. No shortcuts at all. Now, That was one of the reasons that that he took upon himself a body. Because he, he couldn't do that without a human body. And so you always need to remember that the suffering of Jesus was absolutely legitimate. It was real. He tasted death. He experienced death. And the death was on our behalf. It was for us. And it was the result of the grace of God. It was God's undeserved love toward us that moved Jesus to die this horrible death. And in His death, He accomplished our redemption. In tasting death, He accomplished our redemption. Now look at verse 10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now that word fitting is an interesting word. It means that that, um, the way God accomplished our salvation is consistent with His own character. You say, well, what do you mean by that? This is what I mean. Uh, God is holy. Completely separate from sin. God is just. He has to punish sin. So because God is holy... He must always be separate from sin, and because God is just, He must always punish sin. God can't be can't stop being holy, and He can't stop being just for our benefit. He can't do that. It's not consistent with His character. God never changes, and so the only way to accomplish redemption and forgiveness is through the cross. What do you say? Well, what does that mean? Because through the cross, the justice of God is satisfied and the holiness of God is no longer a barrier because you and I are forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Remember, we needed a human representative that is perfect. And that representative had to be willing to absorb the full punishment of all who are going to be redeemed. And so when you think about that, what you see is the cross shows the holiness, it shows the justice, and it shows the love of God. Now, I don't, I don't want you to miss this next statement. For whom and by whom all things exist. That's a beautiful, beautiful statement. You see, all of this, y'all, is is for God. It's for his glory. It's for his praise. It's for his honor. Now notice that statement, uh, that through the suffering and death of Christ, God has brought many sons to glory. Now when you think of sons, think of daughters too. Sons and daughters to glory. But I love that description of salvation. That Christ has brought many sons to glory. And the re- one of the reasons I love that description of salvation is it describes your ultimate salvation. And what I mean by your ultimate salvation is this. The Bible says you have been saved. The Bible says you are being saved. And the Bible says you will be saved. That your salvation is a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. Now you're in the present tense right now. You are being saved, which means God is sanctifying you. God is still working in your life. But if you're truly saved, one of these days you're going to be glorified. You're going to be made perfect. Glorification is the end for every believer. He is bringing us to glory. Now we can think of glory as being uh, another word for heaven, certainly. But the only way for us to really experience this glorious place is to be glorified ourselves. Transformed ourselves. And so I love that, that that God isn't just saving people and leaving those people there, but God in saving people is bringing them to glory. Amen? How many of you are ready to go to glory? I am. Amen? I mean, I'm just ready. He will bring us to glory. I never understand these people who aren't ready to go to heaven. What in the world is keeping you out of heaven, friend? Do you, do you not realize how glorious heaven is? It's a wonderful, wonderful place, man. And every person who's saved is going there bringing these many sons to glory. Now let's look at the final phrase of verse 10. It says, "...should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." Now that, word, that phrase, founder of their salvation, um, the word means author or it means pioneer. And this is where we got the, the title for tonight's message. And it refers to someone who has gone before other people and blazed a trail so that a safe passage can be made. They have gone before and perhaps cleared out all of the forest so that those who are coming behind can have a safe and easy passage to the same place that, that the person in the front went. And here's the, here's the idea, that that Christ blazed through all of our sin, blazed through death, blazed through hell, and blazed a trail all the way to God. He did the work, y'all. He put the hard work in. And know this, that there is no trail to God without Christ. You're not making it. Amen? Without Christ, you're not making it to God. He's the trailblazer. He's the one that opens up the way. And how did He blaze that trail? He blazed that trail through His own suffering. It's through the cross of Jesus that a way has been made. Now don't let that little phrase, made perfect, uh, confuse you. Jesus has always been perfect. The language is used there to describe the obedience of Christ. It was a perfect obedience and it was necessary for our salvation. Jesus is called the second Adam, and as the second Adam, He perfectly obeyed the will of God in every aspect. And though He was already perfect, His perfection was proven by the sinless life that that He lived. He was obedient unto death, the Bible says, even the death of the cross. Now look with me in verse uh, 11. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So who is the one? Well, it's Christ. He's the one who sanctifies us. He cleanses us from our sin through His own sacrifice. And who are the ones who are sanctified? Well, it's us, isn't it? We're the believers. But he says that Christ and the believers have one source. Where do they belong? They belong to the Father. And what is that talking about? That's speaking of your positional righteousness in Jesus Christ. You are in Christ, therefore you are in God. Notice the result of the one source. It says, that is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. You see, through Christ, we're we're united with the Father. We're united with the Son. And because of that, we are now the brothers of Christ. Christ is the unique Son of God. No doubt about that. But we are adopted children of God. And Jesus doesn't look down upon us and consider us stepchildren. He looks upon us and he considers us brothers. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I've, I've mentioned before that you know that old song that used to be a, used to be. A, and some of y'all remember when it was a new song. The family of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family. Everybody used to sing it, didn't they? At church, Every, sing it, sing it, sing it. There's one part in that song that says, um, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God I belong. That's my favorite part of the song, amen? And we're not worthy to be in that family. We're not worthy to be in Christ, to be in God. But, we're, but we belong. We are children of God. We are brothers of Christ and we're not stepchildren. It's, and even when you think about the Jewish people, some people go, well, the Jewish people are the people of God. Listen, everyone in Christ is the people of God. There's not a heaven for Jewish people and then a heaven for Baptists. We're the children of God, and we're just as much a child of God as Abraham was, the Bible says in the book of Galatians. We belong. We're in Christ. We're in God. And then he quotes three Old Testament verses to prove his point. Um, The first comes from Psalm 22. I will tell... uh, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So that first quotation comes from Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, if you know it, one of my favorite psalms is the psalm of the crucifixion. It starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It goes on to talk about him being pierced, his garments being gambled for, all those wonderful things that you see in in that psalm. Um, But in this verse, you have Jesus confessing the name of the Father to His brothers. And His brothers are all of us who believe in Him. And so the point is this, is it is Christ who has revealed the Father to us, y'all. This is how we know who God is. Christ has come to us, His brothers. And He has told us who God is. He, He has shared with us the very character, the very person of God. And then look at verse 13. He quotes um, Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And so both Jesus and the adopted children of God trust in the Father. I want you to notice something special here. He says, whom the Father, behold, I and the children God has given me. The church is a gift from God the Father to God the Son. You've got to understand that that God exists as a trinity. He exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons. One God. But in those three persons, there is relationship. That's why the Son can pray to the Father and there's, there's no contradiction there. They can speak to one another. The members of the Godhead speak to one another. Remember Sunday night we said that God the Father says to God the Son, calls him actually God there. Remember that? And that's why we can never say that we exist because God was only, because God wasn't only, because God has always existed. Three persons, one God. Identical in nature, identical in power, but distinct. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he says here that that the church is a gift from the Father to the Son, which means that you are an expression of love shared by the members of the Godhead. You ever saw somebody receive a puppy? Maybe a little child or something, they got a puppy, and the kid's just so happy, Uh, but the puppy doesn't have a clue. You know what I mean? It's just like, I don't know what's going on here. And I think about that sometimes with us. That we don't understand that, that, yeah, we have Christ, we have the Father, we have the Holy Spirit. But there's there's a special thing about us as a church. We are a gift. From the Father to the Son. That's why we're called His Bride. And that's a humbling thought. That as the Bride of Christ, we've been given to the Son by the Father. He's redeemed us and He will ultimately deliver us to His throne room. What a blessing that is. Alright, I want to go back now and I want to give you a few few, uh, few summary thoughts out of this section with a little bit of commentary and, and then we'll be done. The first one is this humans are a special creation of God. We have never been and will never be angels. Humans are a special creation of God we have never been and we will never be angels. You say, well, why do you say that? I say that because I, it never fails when somebody dies. They say, heaven gave you another angel. No they didn't. You know we just read it. That man is made a little lower than the angels. There's a distinction there. No one you, that you love is an angel and when they're in heaven they don't want to be an angel. Why? Because God didn't make them an angel. God made them a human being. I think we've watched too many old movies. They gained their wings. No, they didn't. No human has ever had wings, nor will they ever have wings. Amen? So, humans are a special creation of God. Hebrews shows us that clearly. We have never been, and we will never be, angels. And by the way, that shouldn't bother us. I can't believe he said, my, my, my so-and-so is not an angel now. Why do you want him to be an angel? Well, what is, what's the point there? That's what I've never understood. Can't you just be what God made you? You don't have to identify as an angel. God made you a person. Number two, we should be humbled that God takes such interest in us. I want to tell you this, that God is more interested in us than we are Him. Amen. And that ought to humble us, that God takes great interest in us. Because we have to be honest, there are days when we neglect our spiritual life. Days when we don't pray like we should. Days when we don't read God's Word like we should. Days when we don't even think about God or praise God like we should. But I'll tell you, there's never a moment that God hasn't thought of you. There's never been a moment that God has not thought of you. We should be humbled that God takes such interest in us. The third summary thought here is when Christ returns, the redeemed will realize the privilege of what it means to be made in the image of God. When Christ returns, the church will realize the privilege of what it means to be made in the image of God. Remember what he said? He said whenever Christ returns, everything's going to be put under His feet. Now this goes back to you not being an angel and never being an angel. Angels are not made in the image of God. You are. You got that? Angels are not made in the image of God. Humans are a special creation made in the very image of God. Therefore, why would you ever want to be an angel? And even when you get to heaven, the Bible says that you will judge angels. So if you want to be an angel, so you want to go to from from judging angels to being judged by people? Is that what you want? No, that's not what you want. Remember, the Scripture says that when Christ returns, everything will be put under His feet and the church will reign with Christ. Well, some believe that that's speaking of the millennial reign for the thousand years, and that very well could be. The point is this. As human beings, we have a special place in God's heaven. A very special place. And it's a wonderful, wonderful privilege that we'll realize when Christ returns. And number four... If we are saved, Christ is not ashamed of us. Remember he said he is not ashamed to call them brothers or sister, or sister you know. You now I say that because sometimes you, as a Christian, perhaps you had a past before you came to Christ. And, and um, you know, Paul talked about that. He talked about When he talked about his salvation, he said, I'm the least of the apostles. And I think that the reason he said that was probably because he carried around a whole lot of guilt. He was an awful person, killing Christians, forcing people to blasphemy, And he called himself the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. And I'm not saying whether Paul is right or wrong in all that. I think he was just humble and that's why he did it. But if we're not careful, what will happen is um, we'll feel so guilty of things that God has forgiven us that we won't really be able to rejoice in the salvation that He's given us. Listen, if you're saved, Christ is not ashamed to call you His brother or His sister. He's not ashamed. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing that we should embrace and we should remember. And, and, we, and, and that should encourage us to never forsake our relationship with God. You say, well, I can't go to the Lord. Look at what I've done. I can't go to the Lord. Look at these thoughts that I've had. Look, we sin every day. But the blood of Jesus is just as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago on Calvary. And the Bible says if we confess our sins that He's faithful and just to forgive us, And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus will never look down His nose at those who belong to Him. He will never treat us in a shameful way. What a privilege that is, y'all. Because I tell you what, I'm ashamed of myself a lot. Amen? But Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Thank God for that. That's as far as we'll get tonight. And Sunday morning we'll pick up... Back in chapter two, verses one through four, and then Sunday night we'll finish. Uh, we'll finish on through here, probably, uh, probably finishing up the chapter on uh, on Sunday night. Uh, again, I want to thank everybody who helped out on. Um